So we are jumping to Zechariah, and um, there's a reason why we jumping to Zechariah is uh, if you've been going through the reading plan, you would have read, we've done Ezra 1 to 6 in this week. And Zechariah and Haggai, the two prophets, would have prophesied during this period of the first six chapters of, of Ezra. And, uh, and what, what prophets do is they give language and vision to what kind of God is doing. They help people understand what is going on. Like uh, what prophets do in one sense, they, they like, if you, if you imagine a kid, uh, um, they've got those, I don't know what they're called, but it's like a piece of paper and it's got black on top of it and then they get like a, uh, like a pin or something and they scrape off the black and all of a sudden this colorful picture emerges. Part of what prophets do is they do that. They like scrape off the surface to give us vision and understanding of what God is doing beyond just the normal. And so what you have is you have this people that have returned uh, from, is, uh, from Babylon. They've returned from Babylon. And now they, what they are having to do is they're having to understand what God is doing with them in this time. And the prophets are the ones who are giving them understanding. So let me just put this down and get to my notes. Oh, we've got a black background. I don't even know how that happened, but woo, check it out. At least you can read it. Hope you can read it all. Um, so what we're looking at this, this morning is last week we looked at two kind of big themes, exile and exodus. And we talked a little bit about God's people going into exile. They end up in Babylon. They are in exile. They are away from home. And we said that exile, in one sense, is the existential human condition. It's the, it's the state in which we find ourselves. We as humans are out of the garden uh, in, in one sense. We are exiled from paradise, from how things ought to be. And Exodus is God's redemptive action. So if we find ourselves in exile, Exodus, the coming back, the coming out of exile and back into the place that God has intended for us is God's redemptive action. He brings his people back. This morning, what I want to look at as we kind of go through this Ezra-Nehemiah kind of narrative is looking at reframing how they were to think of the return, the return to Israel or the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the walls, the society, uh, the city that has been absolutely destroyed. Um, and so that's what we're going to look at. Um, there's, a, there's a movie called The Pas Passengers. don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, it's, uh, but there's this one scene in The Passengers, so two passengers flying in a spaceship. One gets woken up mid-flight. They're meant to be in like whatever that status of sleep. Uh, one gets woken up mid-flight and now has to survive. But there's like an android kind of bartender there. And there's this bartender scene uh, in, in Passengers where, where the, the passenger is having a conversation with this 
Android bartender. And uh, he says to the guy, he says, like, why are you always cleaning the glass? You know, like, I'm the only customer. Like, why are you uh, cleaning the glass? And he says, oh, it's a trick of the trade. You know, it makes you feel more comfortable rather than me just staring at you the whole time. Um, and, uh, and then he says, well, share me some of your bartender wisdom. Um, and the bartender says this. He says, you're not where you want to be. And he's like, yo, duh, obvious. I'm uh, up here in space all by myself speaking to an android, like stating the obvious. You feel like you're supposed to be somewhere else. Well, say you could snap your fingers and be anywhere you wanted to be. I bet you'd still feel this way, not in the right place. Pretty profound. And I think it sums up, in some sense, even what we were talking about last week, the fact that we are in exile. There is something wrong about where we're at. And that even if we moved to Cape Town, as I said last week, even if we got on our cars, moved down there to the promised land, like there would be a part of us that would go, oh my, like this is not even as fulfilling as great as I thought it would be. Or wherever it is, you know, maybe it's up to wherever you want to move to, some part of that is just not as fulfilling as you think it will be. Uh, James K. Smith, he's a philosopher, and he's talking about um, Freud's kind of um, idea of homeness or homeliness. Uh, uh, and and he talks about how Freud says this. He says, one of the states of understanding us as humanity is that we are in this constant state of not at homeness. Uh, not at homeness. That somehow something about even our own existence feels like we are not at home even when we are at home, even where we are in a place where we think we should be. There's this state of somewhat of dissatisfaction. I don't know if you've ever found this, like you've gone down a road um, and maybe it's the road of moving up the coast or moving inland or moving to Cape Town or uh, maybe someone's moved overseas for a period and uh, I in, in these spaces in which you are expecting to find more fulfillment, uh, you get to a place where even though things may seem better, there still seems to be something about you that just doesn't feel 100% right. And that's not just about physical location. That can be, oh, if I get married, all my problems are going to be sorted out. If I get that new job, if I get that promotion, if I do this certain thing, if I drink a little bit more, if I have that glass of wine every night of the week thinking it's just going to help me to ease up a little bit more. There's some part at the end of it, you're like, why am I constantly needing more? We're in this state of not at homeness. Um, and here's the interesting thing. And he's prophesying at a time where the people are there. They gathered, they're starting to build their homes, they're trying to do something to rebuild the, the city. Um, he probably would have prophesied this this very book, uh, this part of the book, just after uh, Ezra 3, which means they just would have 
built their altar and started making sacrifices. Um, but some part of them, even though they are in Jerusalem, is dissatisfied with what they've come back to. And Zechariah, at this point, starts to reframe their thinking. And he reframes their thinking by telling them that their return, their exodus, their coming back is not just a coming back to a place. It's coming back to a person. He talks to them. He says, return to God. And at this point, if you were an Israelite at that time, you probably would have thought, what are you talking about? We've come back. We've come back. We're here. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the promised land. We're, you know, we're hanging out. We're doing our thing. Like, stop um, hassling us about this. But what he's calling them to is he's calling, he's like reminding them that there is a difference between a place and a person. There's a difference between returning to Jerusalem and actually returning to God. Now, I think some of us probably know that there's definitely a difference between a place and a person. If you uh, are married, you, you probably know that there's a difference between being at home and being at home, if you know what I mean. Like being at home, like I'm here, I'm in the physical place and I'm present, there's a difference between just being at home and there being relational unity. There's a difference between the place, I'm actually physically here, and my heart is here. And this can be in any kind of relationship, you know, that you can be in a space, like I'm here, but my heart can be far away. There's a difference between place and person. And that difference is really important because the same tension comes into play even in our faith as we try and walk with God. There's a difference between place and person. We can come to church Sunday after Sunday. We can rock up. We can be here in the chairs. We can serve. We can help. We can set up coffee. We can make cappuccinos. We can do whatever it is that we're doing. We can be in the place but far from the person. We can get caught up with all the religious activities. We can get caught up thinking everything's okay because I'm present in the place, but be far from the person. Just like we can do that uh, in our relationships with one another. I may be at home, but Lisa and I might not be talking to each other. You know, I may be present in the place that I should be, but my heart can be far from the place that it should be. The call of Zechariah is a call to return, not just to the physical place. They've done that already, but they've got one part wrong. They've returned with their bodies, but they haven't returned with their hearts. One of the things that you see when you read Haggai and when you read Zechariah is what's happened is the very thing that they were doing in Babylon. They just come and transported back to Jerusalem. They're just getting on with their own lives, rebuilding their own empires, doing their own thing, totally forgetting about God and his ways. They're coming to just rebuild a rebranded 
Babylon returned to a place with their bodies, but they have not returned with their hearts. What the prophet does is he reframes Exodus for the people. He reframes it before their eyes, preaches in that context and calls a people to turn to God. About 300 AD said this, he said, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Augustine went all the way up to the emperor's courts. He was like super successful, chasing after ambition, moving from one place after another, making his way all the way into the inner courts, essentially, of the Roman Empire. And as he gets to that place, realizes that in all his ambition and all of his work, his heart still has not found rest, has not found peace. And at this point, if you go and read his confessions, which is a remarkable book, he talks about coming to the place of learning that God is our home. That if we are to return home, if we are to come away from exile, if we are to return home, the only place where our home, where our hearts will truly find rest is when it finds rest in thee, when it finds rest in God. God is our, this he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Church, no place per se, it is a relational thing. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have. We talk about it in like our own language. We use things like, I can't wait to get to heaven. You know, like food, the greatest food, you know, like unlimited supply, you know. It's going to be so happy. Is there going to be cricket in heaven? Like, you know, like we ask all these kind of questions and we we think of eternal life as place, forgetting about person. But the coming home is coming to a person rather than a place. That does not mean that there won't be a place. The Israelites came out of Babylon to a place. And we will go to a place. But what is most important is that we are coming home to a person. Primarily to God first. If that is the way that the prophets want us to understand this, then the main response of us as his people is the very, very difficult word that none of us like to to use. But our main response is repentance. Now, we don't like to talk about repentance. It's like one of the reasons why the church gets a bad rap is like, oh, 
church, you know, talking about things like sin and, uh, uh, you know, wrong stuff, always trying to make me feel bad and then like calling me to repent. And like, I get that. Like, we don't like that. But repentance is one of the primary means in which relationships are reconciled. If we want to have a reconciled relationship, whether with God or with each other, repentance is one of the primary means in which that happens. It's been able to say, sorry, it's been able to recognize that we are wrong in some sense and uh, uh, to say sorry. So I want to look at three kind of things that repentance is. We're going to look at recognition, remorse, and rejoice. Um, just as we look at this idea of repentance. If returning to God is primarily the, the big idea uh, uh, in terms of the exodus, then repentance is our key activity. And repentance is essentially three things, recognition, remorse, and rejoicing. Recognition. Recognition is the acknowledgement that I was wrong. It's the recognizing that I was wrong. You know, if one of the ways, if you want to have good relationships, is at some point to realize that at some point you're going to be wrong. And when you are wrong, to recognize that you're wrong, to be able to see, to be able to understand that you are wrong. Actually, uh, so in, in a relationship, it may be with Lisa and I, and I've been harsh or, uh, you know, something that, that is wrong. <laughs> what are you looking at me like that for? <laughs> I better recognize. Um, the, the first part of reconciliation is me actually knowing that, hey, I really spoke to you in an unfair manner there, like being able to recognize that what I did was wrong. So sometimes we, we are clueless about this kind of thing. And this becomes a problem with our relationship with God. And sometimes we're clueless about this kind of thing. We, we're just like we say to someone, hey, I can see that you irritated with me, so I'm sorry if I did anything wrong to you. Like, that's the worst apology anyone could ever do. Like, I'm sorry if I did. It's like, I've got no recognition. There's no recognition. There's, the only recognition is that you are irritated. There's no recognition of wrongdoing on, on my part. It's like a really bad apology. But the first part of repentance is recognition. That's what Zachariah is calling them to. He's saying, remember what your forefathers have done. Remembered how they lived. He's calling them to look at their way of life and recognize that that way of life was incongruent with loving God. He's calling them to recognize before he even calls them to be remorseful, to say sorry. It's a recognition of a way that is wrong. For some of us, that recognition comes when we've gone down a road. We've gone down a road and we've realized that as we've gone down the road, it's felt empty. We use terms maybe like this. I've gone down a road of drinking. I've gone down a road of of 
self-enlightenment. I've gone down this road and I've felt empty. I thought this is crazy or that didn't work or I was wrong. And these kind of like terms start coming up. It's the beginning of recognition that the road in which we have walked is wrong. I'm far from God and recognize that the journey we on, we are walking far from him. The first step, repentance, is recognition. I think even in a nation, I'm a white male, which uh, means I'm very privileged in South Africa. And um, I, I've understood some part of this for myself is what I often do is I blame my parents' generation for the current state. So I've sat with pastors before and I'm like, you're a bunch of useless pastors. Like, what were you doing during apartheid? You did nothing, you know, like, um, and, and what I do is I just, I'm putting all the blame on them, but I'm not recognizing that I myself have are perpetuating some of the systems of my parents. Recognizing that I myself am living in an unjust part of the recognition that they are called to is not just a recognition of what they are doing right now, but a recognition of what their parents did and what their parents' parents did and how that has caused them to inherit a world that is not right. The second step is remorse. Remorse is it's the part that we don't like. It's the part where you feel bad. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You've felt remorseful. It's the part that we don't like when we talk about sin is that sometimes we feel bad about it and no one wants to feel bad. Um, um, but remorse is a part of our own journey of relational healing with God or with people is when not only we recognize that we've been wrong, but we feel there's a sense of regret about what we have done, the way that we've acted, the, the journey that we've been on. There's a sense of remorse. And probably the language we use when remorse has way is we say things like, I am sorry. One of the key words to good relationships about returning to a person, not just to a place, is these words, I am sorry. I am sorry. I don't know what relational difficulties you have with anyone, but if you haven't said these words, probably these words would go a long way to healing the place you are in right now. Sorry. Because you're angry with me. I'm sorry because... I acted this way because I did this. And in this instance, it's the Israelites being able to repent, being able to say to God, we are sorry because we have sought our own way. We have done our own thing. We have tried to build an alternative 
Babylon instead of come to the kingdom of God. We have walked in our own way, serving our own desires, making a religion all about us. I am sorry. Repentance involves recognition, but it also involves remorse. And then the final part of idea of repentance is rejoicing. Repentance, when it's had its full work in our lives, does not just involve feeling bad. If you just feel bad, you probably are not truly engaged in the journey because there is a part of repentance that is rejoicing. It is not just the recognition that we are in the wrong place or that we have done the wrong things or we have broken relationships because of our actions. It's not just the remorse, feeling bad because of that. It is also the rejoicing because of the uniting of the relationship. It is the rejoicing in in this context. It's a rejoicing that we welcome back God as King, as Lord in, in our lives, in our rule. We rejoice because we celebrate God's ways, that God's ways are better than our ways, that God uh, understands things better than we do. We, re- we rejoice because in God we truly find rest. We rejoice because there is the uniting of hearts again. Repentance is this remorse. It is this recognition remorse, but it's also this delight, this God, we have come back and you are better than anything. Um, Just as we come towards a close, I want to read 15 because I think this is just... Such a beautiful passage. Luke 15, verse 11, we'll probably know this story. It says, there was was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, quick, the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son 
of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father and said, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when a... But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My dad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. The amazing parable that Jesus tells. And it is a parable to me that explains something of God's response to us in exile and exodus. It's God's response to someone that runs off on their own mission, doing their own thing away from the Father. At some point, comes home. And when he comes home, the reception that he gets is not the reception that one would expect. You would expect the son who has been rebellious, who has wasted his father's wealth, who has done his own things, who has squandered every bit of it, who comes home with absolutely nothing to show except the fact that he has made the family name like dirt. You would expect that he would get a lecture, he would get a rebuke, he would maybe be cast out, he would maybe be banished. But as one theologian says, what you get is you get a father who walks to the end of the driveway every single day, hoping that one day when he walks to the end of the driveway, he will see his son coming down the road. And what you see is you see the father who when the son comes down the road, runs, he lifts up his robe in an undignified way and he runs out to the son. And while the son is trying to repent, trying to be remorseful, trying to use his words, he keeps the son silent, puts the robe on his shoulder, puts a ring on his finger. He shows incredible love and grace. Zacharias says, return to me and I will return to you. And we look at that and we look at it as a harsh conditional kind of view of God. That what God is saying is is like, hey, if you do this, then I'll do that. But only if you do this. But what the parable of the prodigal son does is it reframes our understanding of how God responds to our repentance. God is a father who eagerly is waiting, waiting for our return to him. Not, he doesn't want to come and force us into any kind of way. He is waiting for us to return to him. And when we do, He has the robe and the ring and the fattened calf and the house and all of that ready eating for us to return to him. Nehemiah, we think of this book as a book about social reconstruction. Um, And it is, 
It's the rebuilding of a culture, a people, an identity. It's a rebuilding of their religion and ultimately their city. And so when we think about that, we want tools for our own social reconstruction. How can we deal with crime, inequality, racism? How can we deal with the fact that so much of this nation and this people uh, needs to be rebuilt? How do we deal with the fact that the rainbow nation dream seems to have failed and that we just aren't seeming to move forward. We're hoping to find a solution to our social reconstruction problem. But as the prophets talk into that, they remind people that what comes first before anything else, what comes first in the project of reconstruction is learning that we are not just returning to rebuild the city, we're turning to God and rebuilding our relationship with Him. Even as we go on in the next 10 weeks after this and we talk a bit about, we'll talk about social reconstruction, we're going to talk about some things that Ezra and Nehemiah bring up. But the first thing to remember is that the call before social reconstruction, as Bob Wellinger says, that spiritual renewal always precedes social reconstruction. The call first and foremost is the call to return to God. And so one of the most important tools in any rebuilder's toolbox is that word we never like to talk about, repentance, pray this morning. We've wondered, we've walked away, maybe you've even been in church week after week, week after week, but while you're in the place, your heart may be far from God. The call is to repent, it's to recognize, remorseful, it's to rejoice. It's to come back to God. Father, thank you for your word. This that you framed repentance in the parable of the prodigal son. God who is eager and gracious and waiting and excited for your people to return to yourself. And so I pray, Lord, pray for anyone here who is maybe feeling in their own hearts this morning the need to repent. Oh Lord, I pray that as they do, they would experience the warm and loving embrace of you as you pull them into yourself. Won't you help us to be a people, a people who return not just to the bull not return, not just to the rebuilding of church and, and making it look so great, the rebuilding of worship services and all of that. I pray, Lord, that we would return to you. We would return to you, that our hearts drawn to you are from you. In Jesus' name. And thank you, guys. That's week two. We continue with the Rebuilders, uh, as I mentioned, the Rebuilders reading plan. We're going to start with Haggai 1 and 2 tomorrow and Zechariah as we kind of look at what the prophets were prophesying in that time. Um, so find us on social. If you need the reading plan, we'll put it up on social again today so that you can see where we are. Um, otherwise, have a really good week.